Well, it's good to be back after a while. I know some of you and others probably not. I see some new faces, which is always good in a new church plant. My name is Larry Kirk. I'm the pastor of Christ Community Church in Daytona Beach, Florida. And it was our privilege to be a part of partnering with Grace Life in the early days with Jeff and Tommy. And um, we also, out of our church, planted Restoration Church and are presently planting Identity Church in Midtown Daytona. It's hard for me to believe how many years have gone by. I came to Daytona Beach from St. Louis, Missouri in 1984 to start Christ Community Church. And so I've been there for, what is it, 35, 36 years now. And, um, and when I look at you all, I'm so encouraged to see the progress and the strength, and just to celebrate with you, what is it, your fifth year anniversary of existence? And I remember so well some of the early days in our own church plant. Um, Tommy, by the way, is preaching at my church in Daytona. I started to say this morning, but he started last night because we now have three services, Saturday night and two on Sunday mornings. So thank you for sharing him with us, and I'm thankful to be here with you. As I said, I have a heart for church planting because we did it, and you're doing it, and there's a dichotomy in church planting in that church planting remains by every standard the very best way to spread the gospel, to establish the gospel in new places, to reach more people and different kinds of people than any other method of evangelism, starting new churches. And the dichotomy is that there's a high failure rate in the early stages of church planting. You're past that. And that's a wonderful thing. You're self-supporting, self-governing. You're an established outpost for the gospel and the kingdom of God. And it's just great to see. And I look back at how sometimes it felt like things were going quick and then sometimes slow. But I look back and see how God's blessed us and how he's blessed you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I have such great respect for and confidence in um, Tommy and Sarah. Tommy talks to me often, and I can sincerely tell you he's got such a deep and profound commitment to the Lord, to serving the Lord here, to doing it well, to doing it prayerfully, and to serving you in this context. Um, I have a story that kind of relates to when I was a young pastor just starting Christ Community Church. How many of you have ever heard of a Christian author and speaker named J.I. Packer? Anybody ever heard of J.I. Packer? Okay, quite a few people. Well, when I was a young pastor, he had written a book that was incredibly influential, not only for me, but for many of my friends. It was called Knowing God. And this book, Knowing God, was all about the attributes of God, but what it means to not just know about God, but to know him. And it added such a depth and a richness to our understanding of, of who God is and what it meant to be a Christian that we just passed it around, and I read it like four times. So early in, in my church planting experience, I think we were even smaller than, than you are now. There was like 65 people, and I was actually reading another book that he had written called Keep in Step with the Spirit. And we came into a time where there was a little bit of tension in our church because we had attracted a lot of people who came from very different Christian backgrounds. Some who were more what we would call reformed or Calvinistic and kind of doctrinally based, and then others that had come out of more 
Pentecostal charismatic churches where there was a profound emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes, you know, these two different currents within the larger body of Christ didn't really understand each other. And I remember thinking, if there was anybody that I could call and ask for wisdom, it would be J.I. Packer. But he was, he was like the Chuck Norris of theologians. He was like, you know, the, the one that everybody was like in awe of and impressed by. And I thought, how would I ever get a chance to talk to him? But then one day I had this idea that came to me. Why don't I call the institution where he teaches, Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, and just see as if I were a student on campus if I could make an appointment, but it would be a phone appointment. And so I checked out all the difference in the time zones and made sure I was calling at an appropriate time. And I called and I asked for this. And to my surprise, and a little bit of like, it kind of threw me, I'm going to knock this over or fall in here before this is over. Has that ever happened yet? No? Okay. I don't want to be the first. Um, to my surprise, the lady I was talking to in the administrative office said, Dr. Packer isn't on campus right now. He's taking a break and he's at home, but he'd love for you to call him at home. And I thought, oh, there's no way. I, I mean, this is like Chuck Norris, you know, get, get, in, get, in, get in the ring and spar with him for the afternoon. You know, I, I just didn't feel comfortable doing that, but she kept telling me, she, there was something in her voice that really made me feel like, well, maybe that's just the kind of guy he is. And so I called his house. And his wife answered. And she said, hello, this is Kitty. She, they're British. And I, I realized on the flyleaf of this book that had like changed my life, it said, for Kitty. He had, in, he had devoted the book to her, his wife. And so I told her what I was doing. And she said, well, let me get Jim for you. And the next thing I knew, I was talking to J.I. Packer. And he talked to me for about a half an hour. And he was so generous and so thoughtful and so interested in me and my little church plant and rented facilities in Daytona Beach. It was just so deeply encouraging on multiple levels. Not only his, his good advice, but just the fact that he would take the time to talk to me. And so the scripture that we just heard read, all of this story about J.I. Packer came to mind when I was thinking about this passage because it's the story of Jesus taking time with two men, just everyday guys, regular guys, and inviting them home with him and spending time with them. And there's really a very profound lesson in that. This is the very first time in any of the four Gospels where you have Jesus interacting with individual people in this way. At least, what I mean by in this way is where you have the followers of Jesus, where the word following him. I mean, you know, you have the childhood stories in the Gospel of Matthew and especially in the Gospel of Luke where he interacts with the Pharisees. But this is the first place where people begin to follow Jesus. And there's a principle in the Bible that's sometimes called the first mention principle. That when something appears for the very first time, it has a unique significance. Like when, you know, in Genesis, when you have the very first 
a story of marriage, Adam and Eve. It becomes like a template for all marriage. For this cause, a man will leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. And it's the same way here. You have, for the very first time, Jesus finding followers and the followers that Jesus finds. And when we look at the story and we ask, well, what do we learn from this? I think there's really a very profound lesson for all of us. And and the first lesson that stands out in the story is that what Jesus offers to people like you and me is, is an unmatched friendship with him, the Son of God. When I was first thinking about this, I wanted to make the first point Jesus is friendly. But I just hesitated because it sounds so trivial, right? It kind of seems to minimize the majesty and the beauty and the glory of his lordship and all of that. But there really is an element of that in this story. Jesus offers friendship. the, The story starts in verse 36. Look at verse 36 if you have your Bibles open or or if you have that little printed sheet or I don't know if they can. Yeah, there it is. In verse 36, it starts with these two men who are just standing beside John the Baptist near the River Jordan. So just for a minute, imagine who are these guys and what's happening in the story. These are, these are two men who are unnamed in the beginning. Later on, we're going to find out who they are. But right now, they're just two disciples, and this means disciples of John. And so here's two guys who are leaning into their relationship with God because something is in the air. There's something that's going on out on the edges of the desert by the River Jordan where this, this dynamic, bold, kind of eccentric uh, preacher, John the Baptist, is calling people to repent and make ready the way of the Lord. And so they're out there, and they want to be a part of this, and they're leaning into it. And one day, while they're there with John the Baptist, Jesus appears, and John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was prior to this reading. That was in verse 27. And so now it's the next day, and they're back there. And so you can imagine, you know, the the Bible's very very kind of concise with how it tells the story, but you, you, you've got to imagine these are regular people. If that happened the day before, they're there and they're talking about this with each other and they're asking, what was that? Who is this? What does it mean? What's next? And he shows up again and John says, behold the Lamb of God. He doesn't even have to say who takes away the sins of the world because that's what the Lamb of God does. It would be redundant. He says, behold the Lamb of God. And they immediately begin to follow him. And what do they find when they follow him? What they discover is what everybody discovers, what you, I hope, have discovered, what, if you haven't discovered it, you can discover it for yourself, and that is this, that Jesus welcomes sincere followers. He welcomes them. He, he, he turns around and he sees them. So this is like... Literally, they're, they're literally physically following him, you know, down the path, down the road. And he turns to them and he says, what do you want? And they say, where are you staying? And he basically says, come see, you know, come hang out with me. And this is so revolutionary for this man that's writing for the Apostle John, who is one of the unnamed disciples, that he puts down, it was the 10th hour. John reckons, reckons his 
gospel by Roman time, unlike the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So that means the consensus of scholars is it was like 10 o'clock in the morning. He invites them back home with him, and they spend the day with him. And it changes John's life. And, um, you know, there, I say Jesus welcomes followers. He says, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you staying? And he invites them to come and see. And there's something very, very significant, even symbolic, happening because this idea of following Jesus is going to become a huge theme through all the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of John. And so they're, they're like doing it physically, and yet embedded in the story symbolically is a lesson about following Jesus for all of us. In other words, it, it really happened. It was, it, it, it's a historical record, but there's a symbolic element. If, you know, if I said to you, I put a ring on a girl's finger 43 years ago, that really happened, but it also had symbolic significance. And I, I believe in the Gospel of John especially, there are layers of symbolic meaning that are really rich. And so Jesus turns to them and he asks them a question. He says, what are you seeking? And I think that's a profound question. What are you seeking? Christian counselor and psychologist, Dr. Larry Crabb, said he got to a point in his life as a Christian counselor where he became a little bit disillusioned with Christian people who were coming for counseling because there, he would have these people who would never go to like a secular counselor. They would only, only go to a Christian counselor, a biblical counselor, and yet when they would come to him, they would just basically want him to help them fix their lives to be more comfortable, not to actually follow Jesus more closely. And so it's kind of ironic, like, no, I'm not going to go to a secular counselor. I only want a Christian counselor, but do I really want Christian counsel? And so he said that one day a guy came to him and he was feeling this disillusionment. And so he said to the guy, what is it that you really want? And the man said, I just want to feel better. And Larry Crabb said, is that all you want? Yeah, I just want to feel better. And Larry Crabb said, well, then what, what I suggest is you buy a case of your favorite adult beverage, find an affectionate companion, and go on a trip to the Bahamas. Now, he didn't really mean that, right? But what he was saying is, if that's all you want, maybe you're not really asking for Christian counsel. And I believe when we read Jesus turn to these disciples, or whenever we read through the Gospels and you have a situation like this, Jesus is walking and they're following. He says, what are you seeking? We're, we're not just supposed to hear that and think, isn't it interesting? A long time ago, Jesus asked two disciples of John what they were seeking. No, you're supposed to hear the Holy Spirit asking you. Jesus, by his Spirit, asking you, what are you seeking? What do you want from me? What are you after? You've taken your first steps to follow Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. But what do you really want? Do you want the truth that will set you free? Do you want him to truly be Lord and Savior in your life, in the details of your life? If so, then know this. Jesus 
welcomes sincere followers like that. I believe their answer is also significant. When they say, where are you staying? It's kind of an indirect way of saying, we, we don't want to just stand here for a moment and get a quick answer to some random theological question. We want to know you. We want to know more about you. We want to, we want to be in relationship with you. And that's, that's a seed. That's a start. That's something that can go and it can grow into something much, much bigger. So Jesus welcomes sincere followers. And, and he welcomes ordinary people, regular guys. I mean, in this story, they're men, but you'll, you'll see later in the Gospels, the women are involved. And these are fishermen. We know that. Like I said, later we're going to find out that this is Andrew and John, and then there's also Philip and Peter, and these are all fishermen. And there's nothing wrong with that, but they weren't influential people. These are not like key contacts or strategic uh, individuals, you know, who can accomplish a, a marketing or something like that. You know, it's not like that. These are, their clothes would have gone better with just the patched sails and the worn seats of their fishing boats than with the sophistication of Rome or even Jerusalem. These were regular guys, and Jesus invites them into his life. If you ever wonder, and, and don't we all, does Almighty God, the creator of the world, really care about the details of my life? Or does he really take an interest in people like me? Just a working guy, a homemaker, a professional, whatever. Someone who's just at the beginning of their life and wondering what, what, where it's going to lead. Or someone maybe on the, the end of their life and looking back and feeling like, you know, it was just an everyday life. But if you ever wonder, then remember the story here of Jesus spending a day with two regular guys leaning over some, you know, wooden table in a little humble home somewhere by the Jordan River and spending time with them and talking with them and interacting with them. Because part of the beauty of all this is where it's headed, and where it's headed is the assurance that Jesus offers exactly the same type of relationship with you and me today. Three years after this meeting, he's going to be with these same disciples and the others in the upper room some lamplit upper room in Jerusalem, speaking his last words to them. And in John chapter 16, he says to them, it's better for you that I go away, because if I go away, I will send my Holy Spirit. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you, and it will be better for you because I will be able to be with all of you all the time, intimately, inside you, part of you, and I'll never leave you or forsake you. Isn't that an amazing thing? You know, because I read a story like this and I think, oh, that would be so cool to have the whole day. Imagine, you know, 10 in the morning, I'm meeting Jesus <laughs> and we're hanging out all day. 
And I know it's faith-stretching. It's hard to get our hearts fully wrapped around it, even when we intellectually believe it. But what the gospel tells us is that we have that and more every day of our lives. You can spend your lifetime trying to grow into the full understanding and recognition of that. And here's, and, and part of the beauty and the power and the humbling, heart-shaking awesomeness of it is that Jesus can offer that to us because he's not only the light of the world, but the Lamb of God. I mean, think of the grace that's taking place here. Who is it that's, all, that's spending time with these, these men? Who is it that's actually sitting there with them, offering them himself? He's not only the light of the world, but he's the Lamb of God. And if you were to go back, this is only in the second half of John chapter 1. If you were to go back to the beginning of John chapter 1 and just think about who it has said this is, who's hanging out with these regular guys, in the very first three verses it says, He is the Word through whom all things were made. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in like verse 9 it says, He's the true light who coming into the world gives light to every man. And then later it says, he's the Lord for whom John the Baptist is, is preparing all of the people. He is the one that John the Baptist says, he's, John the Baptist says, I am not worthy to untie the laces of his sandals. Later, Jesus is going to say of John the Baptist, there's nobody born among women who's greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says in relationship to Jesus, I'm not even worthy to take the, the, the lowest place of the, the most menial slave in the household to untie his shoes at the end of the day. He's the one that John the Baptist says is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's going to have to do that. Go to the cross and absorb all the punishment, the judgment, the wrath that you and I deserve because we're so broken bitter and so demonstrably shallow and so predictably sinful. He's going to go to the cross and absorb the judgment that we deserve and rise again from the dead and send the Holy Spirit through whom he offers himself in friendship to people like you and me. And it's amazing grace. And when you receive it, it changes you. That's the second part of the story. The first part is just this, the reality that what Jesus offers us in himself is this unmatched friendship as a gift of grace. But the oops, boom. Second part, I'm trying to stay where they can keep me in the frame. The second part of the story is that those who participate in that friendship are radically changed through it and by it. And you see that when you come to this part about Andrew and Simon Peter in verse 40. We read in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. 
And so when Jesus looks at you, here's, here's what this means. When Jesus looks at you, he sees the truth about you. Because when Jesus says of Simon, you are Simon, son of John, on the surface, he's just, you know, revealing, I know who you are. But he's also saying something else because the name Simon, the, all of these names in the Bible, are, you, you know that names are significant, and when names are changed, it really means something. Abraham becomes, or Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah. All of those name changes are significant, and it's the same here. Because in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, Simon, or Simeon, is one of the 12 sons of Israel, and he is the one who's famous for being impulsive, passionate, and rash. And that's exactly what Peter's like. Simeon, Acts chapter 15, the apostle James calls Peter Simeon. That's what his name means. He's the one who, when his sister was assaulted and offended by the men of a certain village, he, together with his brother Levi, rashly attacks the village and doesn't just find the guilty parties, but kills all the men in the village. And it's not good. God doesn't approve, and Israel doesn't approve. But it becomes kind of this, this kind of archetypical story of that's what Simeon was like. And and so when Jesus says, you're Simeon, son of John, it, he's kind of like naming him, but he's also hinting at the diagnosis of what Peter is like. Because when you read the Gospels, this is exactly what Peter's like. He's the one who pulls his sword out in the garden and cuts off the ear of, of one of the soldiers who comes to arrest Jesus. He's rash, he's impulsive. Jesus sees who we are. He doesn't see our, our Instagram self, right, that we would like to present to the world. He sees the reality. He sees into your heart. He knows what you don't even want to admit to yourself. And he sees not just the things you have done, but the way you are. All the flaws, all the frailties. The beauty of it is, he also sees what you can become by the grace of God. And so when he says you're going to be Cephas or Peter, that's Aramaic and Greek for the word for a rock. And later Jesus will repeat that. That Peter is going to become, as rash and impulsive as he has been, he's going to become a rock of fidelity and stability and faithfulness. When God looks at you, he looks beneath the surface to see the person that he intends for you to become and that he can make you by his grace. And so the love of Jesus for us is not just a kind of miracle of willpower. That's how I used to sometimes think of it. Like he looks at me and he thinks, Ugh. but by you know, his divine, miraculous love, he just overcomes that. It's not just that, it's also a way of looking to see beneath the surface who by the work of grace you can become, maybe a little bit slowly, that's the way it was with Peter, but more and more, and then ultimately what he can make of you in your eternal destiny. 
So I think we need, it's a beautiful, there's a place, there's a sermon by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory, and he says, everybody you meet, there's no ordinary people. Everybody you meet is going to be turned into something. <laughs> and they're either, for those who, who reject God and the gospel, they're either going to be turned into something so hideous that if you were to see it now, it would just frighten you, or... Everyone who receives Jesus, who receives grace, what we're promised is that, that that person is going to be turned into something so glorious that if you were to see them now in that glorified state, you'd be tempted to fall down at their feet and worship them as a god or a goddess. It's an amazing thing that the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians, it says that who we are now and who we shall be, it uses the analogy of a seed and what grows from the seed. Imagine if you'd never ever seen an oak tree and somebody showed you an acorn and said, this is gonna become that. It's an amazing thing. And so whenever you think about the love of Christ for you and what he offers, you realize that he sees the reality about who you are, but he also sees what he can begin to do in your life and what he can perfect as part of your eternal destiny. Because he's the light that comes into the world and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And not only does he see who you were and who you are, but he sees, or, or let me put it differently, he gives you a new purpose from which to live this new life that he gives you. And you see that when you come in the verses down to, um, to verse 43 through 46, it says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Beth Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. The whole Hebrew Bible, the whole Old Testament story led to him. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Now, maybe I should have told you before I read this, but there's a pattern here where what Jesus does is, is kind of lived out by those who begin to follow him because that's part of what it means to follow him. It's not just to physically follow him, but Jesus reaches, um, Jesus reaches Andrew and Andrew finds his brother Peter. Jesus finds Philip and then Philip finds Nathaniel. The same words that are used in verse 43 to describe what Philip did I mean, to, in verse 43, to describe what Jesus did are used in verse 45 and 46 to describe what Philip does. Each of them found somebody and said something. Jesus found Philip and said, follow me. Philip goes and finds Nathaniel and says, come and see. And so the point is that walking with Christ becomes reaching out with Christ to invite others with you to follow Christ. Pastor Tommy told me that here at Grace Life, he's talked about this idea of gathering and then growing and going, and that you want to do all three. And there's a sense in which you see all that kind of in seed form here in this story. Jesus is gathering his first disciples. 
they're beginning to grow that community of followers of Jesus. And later, they're going to go into all the world to make disciples who also will follow Jesus with them. And one study that I looked at years ago and then recently reviewed, and it still holds up, in this study they asked 14,000 followers of Jesus what it was that brought them to faith in Christ and to committing their lives to following him and, and being disciples. And out of, out of these 14,000 people, they ended up with like five or six different categories of causes, reasons that people trace back. This is why I'm following Jesus today. And I don't remember all of them, but like, you know, it was like 1.5% was because of the influence of a pastor. And maybe like 2.5% was like um, some special program that a church put on. But here's what was most significant. Over 75% of the people who are following Christ today said it was because of the influence of a friend, a family member, a co-worker, or some acquaintance who personally invited them to church or to faith or to a Bible study. It was through circles of individual relationships that by far and away, the largest number of people came to faith in Christ. I'd say the wrong thing. I read another study. It was talking about how on campus ministries, people are finding it harder and harder. These campus ministries, InterVarsity and Campus Crusade or Crew, that's they now call it, and Campus Outreach, harder and harder in today's culture to bring people to faith. So many obstacles. But where they were seeing fruit, they began to study what was the cause for the fruitfulness in those places where people were effectively sharing their faith. And they discovered that most people that were coming to faith on those campuses said that they, were, they had to pass through these, what they ended up calling the five thresholds of conversion. And the first was that they had to pass from distrust to trust. That many of them had no, they didn't know any Christians that they trusted. They thought all Christians were just hypocritical, judgmental, belligerent, arrogant. Don't trust them. And so there had to be someone that they began to trust. And then they had to move from indifference to curiosity. From I could care less to, at least I'm curious about what is it that makes you a believer? Why do you follow Jesus? And the third threshold was then from just kind of, you know, vague curiosity to actually being open to considering, not just I'm curious about what Christians believe, but gosh, I wonder if Christ might be the answer for my life. And then from from that level of openness to actually seeking. Could this be? I'm going to start looking into this. I'm going to read that book that Tommy gave me. I'm going to go to that Bible study that Sarah's hosting or that Grace Life puts on. And then from actually seeking to trusting Jesus. Well, in this story, what you have in these early relationships is that already there was some trust. Andrew finds his brother. Philip finds his friend. There's some trust. And what you see is so interesting is that Philip, when he meets Nathaniel, 
is trying to awaken that curiosity. Come and see, he says. We found the one that all the prophets talk about, that the whole Bible leads up to. He really is who he, who he claims to be. He's the Savior. And Nathaniel, this is interesting, it's not as if, it's just like today. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, and not everybody's one of my sheep, so there's often going to be rejection. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, he's disdainful, he's contemptuous, he's patronizing, but he ends up believing. He's drawn by God, by the sovereign God and the work of the Holy Spirit. He ends up believing, and God works through these human instruments. And here's the point. This whole story is put in the Gospels to tell you that Jesus welcomes followers like us, regular people who follow him. He initiates the relationship. He asks you, what are you seeking? He invites you into relationship with him. It's the Lamb of God. He dies for your sins and rises again. He comes by his Holy Spirit and lives with you today. He knows all the sin and the shame and everything you have been and are, but he also sees beneath all of that to who he's wanting to make of, what he's wanting to make you, who he wants to make you, how he's going to work in you, and ultimately your eternal destiny. And knowing all of that, he wants you to join him in the work that he's doing in this world by sharing your faith, planting seeds, building trust, and you can begin right where you are, right now, here is part of Grace Life, living your little life here in Deltona, but walking with Jesus every step of the way. Amen. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I thank you for your work here and for the people. I look out upon them and I know that there are people here like Philip and Nathaniel and James and Andrew and Peter. And you see them and you know their names. And you're the Lamb of God for them. And that's so amazing. You're present with us in our daily lives. You've initiated this relationship with us and you refuse to let us go. You'll turn us every way except for loose as you work in our lives to make of us what you've called us to be. We thank you and praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.